0: people want more democracy not less it's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with joy silver outspoken from radio 111 now here's joy
1: today we have a big subject saving democracy and the world a woman's work is never done Dr. Regina Lark is the owner of a Clear Path LLC, a declutter organized move management company based in Los Angeles. She is also an author and speaker, and she also likes to make up goofy songs about clutter. Dr. Regina Lark, may I say hello and thank you for being our guest today. Hello, and thank you for letting me be your guest today. Well, I really appreciate it. I know you wrote a book along with Judith Kohlberg, and that book is called Emotional Labor, Why a Woman's Work is Never Done and What to Do About It. And you're joining us to talk about the radically overlooked gender (laughs) burden that women carry and what stands in the way of, from my point of view, gender (laughs) parity.
0: Yeah, there is none. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Would you define emotional labor for us and for our listeners? Sure. Okay.
0: So, uh, the working definition uh, that Judith and I have come up with is that emotional labor is the invisible, the unseen, the undervalued, the unacknowledged, the unwaged, <laughs> the unanticipated, the unwritten. The unnoticed work that women do at home, undervalued, yet it's highly valued. Without emotional labor, I think we would not have a humanity. We need to have the caring and the consciousness about who's doing what and and are the people that we live with, are they happy? Do they, are their needs met? Are they content? I mean, all of that is relevant, of course, to to our lives, and yet... All of that work tends to more often than not fall on the shoulders of women and for a lot of women it just feels like this huge weight of a burden and they can't see their way out of it
1: so you're you are defining emotional labor and you're talking about how women take on most of this work and
0: do you parallel it to physical labor sure it's um it's both physical and emotional, uh, the work of the household. So when we think of household management, what is household management? It is everything from the physical parts of the management. It's cooking, it's shopping, it's decluttering, it's clearing, it's organizing, straightening up, laundry, all of that work that's involved. And then all of the noticing, the anticipating, the what I had mentioned earlier, making sure everyone's needs are met because it contributes and attributes to a um, a functioning household.
1: When I researched this a bit, and I see uh, Hochschild started to talk about Mm -hmm. some of this in 1983, and it seemed like there was a lot of conversation about this in the workplace, and they didn't really take it over to um, partnerships or marriages or Mm -hmm. families or anything at home. Uh,
0: would Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Arlie Hochschild, sociologist in the 1980s, wrote a book called The Managed Heart, and she interviewed food servers and flight attendants. Oh, wow. Talk about what that, <laughs> you know, the, and look at that today. I mean, oh, my gosh, Joy, the weight and volume of emotional labor in these two professions alone in this still COVID era that we're living in is tremendously challenging and difficult. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Hochschild had her work situated in the paid workplace and flight attendants and food servers are rewarded by their ability to provide the emotional labor for their customers. Mm-hmm. What feminist bloggers, historians, scholars, sociologists and others through the late 90s and into 2000s have looked at, they've, they've taken this idea of emotional labor and they just exploded it to look at all work that is involved when one has to, one's expected to put on a happy face, put their needs behind others, and, and we see this really, really play out in a very big way in the, in the modern household.
1: And, and in the modern household, and I think more examples of this seem to have come up during the lockdown of COVID and childcare. Mm-hmm. child care. care, to comment on some of that?
0: Sure. When the shutdown, so I've been doing research on this for about three years prior to the pandemic. And when we shut down in April and March of 2020, my, one of my very first thoughts was this. Wow. I wonder if the invisible will now become visible. Mm -hmm. I wondered if all of this invisible work and the invisible work of emotional labor outside of the physical, the invisible work away from the physical has a lot to do with noticing and anticipating everything that has to happen. So when corporate America went into the living rooms, kitchens, couches, you know, bathrooms <laughs> um, of the modern home, I was just, I was very excited to see what this would look like because the other adult in the household, I, I try not to be sexist when I think about this. I know that there are a lot of good guys out there that do carry the weight of emotional labor, but my research tells me it's not statistically significant. Right. So when all of the adults were home during COVID, I was sure that the invisible would become visible and you could have knocked me over with a feather. It just didn't materialize. And how Mm -hmm. do we know this? So we shut down in March of 2020. By October, November of 2020, economists tell us that we just ushered in what they called a she session.
1: Hmm.
0: Nicole Mason is a, a brilliant economist and thought leader, and I don't have all of her credentials in front of me, but but she coined the term she-session. And a she-session is where we see the economy go down in female-dominated pursuits. So during a regular recession, building starts, construction, those are the ones that they they happen to be male-dominated, but those are the ones that are usually hard hit during economic turndowns. During the pandemic, teaching Social work, older adult care, child care, you know, all of those are female-dominated industries, and all of those had workers that, that shut down. And we saw well over 2 million women leave the paid professional workplace to do the caregiving at home because the other adult was not stepping up.
1: Right. And,
0: you know, I th- this
1: that you think yeah. that, that, that the complications in marriages and partnerships, um, I think it, it's exasperated, not exasper. well, it is exasperating, actually, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it's made worse by this assumption and the definition of what it means to be a woman, regardless mm-hmm. of, of ethnicity or class or culture. And it, it's all complicated by this issue, and in a lot of ways, from my point of view, it's hindering the advancement of humanity when only one, sure. ha- when half the population is responsible for actually having feelings. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I you know, I'm a, uh, an out and proud lesbian without children. And so there's a section in the book, what does an out-and-proud lesbian without kids know about this topic? Because so much of the topic lands on the shoulders of um, cisgender women, professional women, and this idea, again, of women's work. A couple of things I want to say about that. So I think of this in a very universal way. If you say anywhere around the globe the term woman's work, Mm. I bet everybody will have a very clear idea of what the hell that means. Hmm. Anywhere around the globe, you say the term men's work, oh my gosh, it's so many things. Women's right. <laughs> work, the answer will be something that has to do with the home. Or caretaking of some, of it, some yeah, kind. Yeah, something that has to mm. do with caregiving, the home. You say men's work and it's it's completely external to that Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with the home and right there and and again the work of the household the only really the only time it really requires a vagina is childbirth maybe breastfeeding other than that the work (laughs) is up for grabs it's just work I don't know why it's called, well, I do know why it's called Women's Work, but right.
1: works. So that's tough. Well, I do want to ask you what we could do about that, but before I get to that place with you, I am compelled to share my story of my trip to Moscow in the early 90s when, oh, everybody thought, you know, there was going to be a new Russia now that the, there was the dissolution of the USSR. and in um, moscow at that time and i was traveling back and forth there to establish some women's medical clinics actually mm. so, so i got to see the changes between the the roles of men and women at that time in in what was happening there when they were trying to find their way to really supporting people because the whole the whole the whole economy fell down and yeah, we could go on about that for a while but what i experienced was interesting the the women were doctors they were super mm-hmm. educated and they were doctors and goes to the caretaking aspect of what people see as the medical profession where these doctors were expected to take care of people, but they did not make as much money as the men who drove taxicabs. cabs mm-hmm. and the taxicab drivers made way more money than the women, the women physicians. And most of the physicians were women, interestingly enough. And so even there, the dichotomy goes on. It might not look that way in the United States, but the fact that the medical profession in healthcare was part of the healthcare profession, it was a caretaking situation in which women made less money even though they were more educated than maybe the taxicab drivers were. So it really does fit in worldwide, I think, with the idea of caretaking.
0: That's a very, very good example because it really speaks to how culturally, you know, we can look at this globally, the primary wage earner is different than the primary caregiver. Yeah. And and so... Because the primary wage earner is seen as a a male domain, they're the ones that have to earn the higher wage because they're the wage earner. They're the primary, you know, they're the bread baker. They're the bread winner instead of the bread baker, you know. (laughs)
1: I like that dichotomy there. That's really incredible. I want to remind our listeners that you are listening to Outspoken and we are speaking today with Dr. Regina Lark, author of Emotional Labor, Why a Woman's Work is Never Done and What to Do About It. And I'd like to pause our conversation for a moment and tell you about something very special. Our podcast today is made possible by the generous support of My Little Flower Shop in Palm Springs. They are the premier full-service floral and event design studio in our beautiful desert cities. The staff has more than 50 years of experience designing, planning, and executing one-of-a-kind, high-profile social, corporate, and charity benefit special events. That experience includes the Academy Awards and presidential inaugurations. So whether you are planning a wedding, a birthday, showers, or anniversary parties, or you're organizing a big banquet, My Little Flower Shop uses only the finest flowers and will help you celebrate in style. Everyday arrangements, wedding bouquets, centerpieces, and amazing unique designs. Call My Little Flower Shop. Open daily, 9 to 5. The phone number is 760-778-7111. That's 760-778-7111. And visit them online for visual inspiration, mylittleflowershop.com. At 861 North Palm Canyon in Palm Springs. They're open for delivery and an official sponsor of Outspoken. And we are back with Dr. Regina Lark, author of Emotional Labor. And Dr. Lark, or, or may I call you Regina? Um, Regina's great. Please do tell us, what can we do about this issue? And what inspired you to write this book?
0: I'll start with the latter and end with the former. My Ph.D. is in women's history, and I was laid off. Um, a university job in 2008 at the beginning of the recession. And at that time, it was a good layoff because the job was killing my spirit. And it was also the beginning of the recession, like I said, and so I didn't have many job prospects. And I found myself at the age of 50 with the highest degree in the land, in the land of opportunity. I live in Los Angeles, and I wasn't finding work. And two months into my layoff, I told my roommate, I said, look, I'm going to organize until something better comes along. Oh. Now, just prior to my layoff, I was on a vacation in Jerusalem visiting a good friend of mine. And while I was there, I said, Nader, I don't want to be a tourist. Let me do your kitchen. And she's like, oh, "Habiti? what does that mean? And I said, Nader, your girl's in their 30s and you got sippy cups in the cupboard just let me do what I do. So she let me do what I do, and it was a good result. I get back to my desk at the university. One week later, I'm laid off. Two months later, into my layoff, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm going to start an organizing company, I guess. And that was 13 years ago, and I never looked back. I was going to do it until something better came along, but nothing did. And now my Ph.D. stands for Piled Higher and Deeper. So... (laughs) I in like that. First, I like that. In my first few weeks organizing, I'm sitting on the floor with my clients and we're going through their stuff and they've got a lot of stuff and they're demoralized by the stuff and they feel awful that they can't, don't have a handle on the stuff. And I heard more and more smart, professional, high wage earning women tell me about their failures as housewife and mother because they couldn't do this. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. And I actually said this to Sylvia at the time we were sitting on the floor. I said, Sylvia, just because you have a vagina doesn't mean to the man are born and I gave her what I knew to be History One O one, women's history one oh one. And I and we talked a lot about these prescribed ideas of what it means to be female. Mm -hmm. And 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 it it was she was so grateful that It wasn't something she should know how to do. Right. It's something that has to be done. It's Mm -hmm. work that has to be done, but it doesn't have to be done by the female in the household. Mm -hmm. I just, it just doesn't. So what are the solutions? There's a section of the book called The Emotional Labor Life Cycle, and I ask new veteran couples, you know, if you're just starting out or if you've been at it for a while, So look at the emotional label life cycle and see where you are at. If you're just starting out in a new relationship, begin to acknowledge who is going to remember that first kiss, that first date. Who's going to be the keeper of the emotional information that's going to evolve as you evolve as a couple? Mm -hmm. And you have to talk about it. You have to be able to anticipate what's coming up, talk about what's coming up. How are you going to divide and conquer? And it's not necessarily dividing household labor by what you're good at, because women are better at it, hands down. <laughs> right? Because that's how we're raised. We're raised to notice what needs to be done. Uh-huh. So saying that the best person to do the job should do the job, you <laughs> right. unrealistic, because women would be doing all the jobs. So. Talk about what needs to be done, delegate, decide what has to happen as a couple, as a team. You know, a lot of women tell me and I did a lot of focus groups and they would say, well, my husband said he was going to do the laundry, but I got it back because I'm better at it. And I'm like, stick him in front of YouTube. I mean, I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. figure out the laundry. I just, so it's dialogue, a lot of conversation learning what you can outsource as you can afford different things to outsource, taking stuff off the list. Does this actually need to happen or would it be nice to have, have happened like Christmas cards Mm -hmm. when, as soon as November 1st hits and I do this every year, I cringe for the women who have this burden of emotional labor through November and December. It's like this is the worst time. Mm -hmm. I know that there's a lot of love and brightness and cheeriness and, Cultural messages about family togetherness and all of that, and making people happy, and of course, we love to do that. But my gosh! <laughs> you know? Well, it sounds so.
1: it sounds to me like you're a proponent of the personal is political. Would I be correct?
0: <laughs> Absolutely! <laughs> oh my gosh!
1: All right, you nailed it. How, <laughs> how do how do women? And you know what you're talking about is the individual, and this is the awakening and awareness you were able to engage with with your friend, I think you said her name was Sylvia, you were able to talk about this on an individual level, make, uh, letting mm-hmm. her know that this was not a personal issue, but instead was the institutionalization of the
0: definition of womanhood in our culture. During one of the focus groups, one of the women said, you know, I didn't know this was going to turn into a bitch session. <laughs> and I said, Hey, hey, hey! Back in the day, we called it consciousness raising. Yeah, wow. <laughs> you know? I mean, we talked to each other about this. Yeah, that's when the personal became you. You nailed it, Joy. Yeah. That's how the personal became political. We talked about it. Yes,
1: that's what made it so. And and the realization. And I think we can take that further along to all of the identified challenges. That people go through, and this includes men and people who are they and non-binary people. And right. I mean, it, the the idea, and um, I actually was having a discussion before we started to record about people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, makes it sound like it's the the challenge is only that individual's challenge, rather than the institutionalization of non-opportunities based on um, birth yeah. or other genetic issues or. You know, class, culture, ethnicity, yeah. gender, all of that. And I think that is where people who don't see us working for the common good want to keep people and thinking that it's all about them. I mean, they've taken the thing that happened with women. And telling them, if you don't like the things you're doing in the home, then it's because there's something wrong with you. And if right, you can't right, work right. and take care of the kids and take care of the husband, and, and if you can't do all of what you're calling emotional labor, there's something wrong with you. They're now using that on a grander scale to keep people in place. And I think that's, if you just had that nice new car. I mean, these are old <laughs> ideas to solve the problem all the way up to addiction. Uh, just take this right. little pill and you'll feel better so that you can do the very thing that you were never really that right. you were never really meant to do anyway. You know, it's, it's, it's a crazy thing. How do women deal with this in the workplace? Well,
0: it plays out in the workplace, too. What has been so fascinating for me is to see, you know, the work, the the traditional corporate workplace was never designed for women. All we have to do is look at corporate hours are 9 to 5. School hours are 8 to 3. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? (laughs) There's a disconnect. (laughs) And yet, those two situations haven't changed. So there's that piece of it. Then, prior to World War I, it was men who dominated, for lack of a better term, corporate spaces. Men dominated corporate spaces, and there was a male boss and a male underling, a male secretary. And the relationship in that corporate space was Similar to father-son, mm-hmm. the male boss would say, "Okay, I'm going to show you how to how I made it to the top. Come on, son, let me show you how it's done." When World War One broke out, and all of these guys leave the corporate spaces, and women are like jumping at the bit. Yes, we can be typewriters and secretaries. Right? <laughs> that was an occupation. A typewriter. Mm-hmm. Um, they clamored into the corporate spaces, and a subtle. And constant shift occurred, and the relationship shifted from father to son to husband and wife. We moved from white collar to pink collar, Mm -hmm. and women in the paid workforce in these corporate spaces were akin to wife and mother, so they're going to be the ones to set up the birthday party, send around the sympathy card for the coworker whose um, parent is ill or had died. And they're going to be the ones that are going to be the shoulder that somebody cries on. So they occupy very similar spaces of the emotional labor when it comes to paid employment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've got countless stories over the last two or three decades of women just saying, no, hell no, recognizing it. No, I'm not gonna make the coffee. <laughs> right.
1: No, this isn't. This is a. I think. I think. Going back to COVID for a second, though, and w- what is coming to my mind right now is the whole concept that employers are looking for employees and that women are not necessarily returning to the to jobs that either they had before are not returning at the same level that was expected and i think it has something to do with what you're talking about in terms of the emotional labor and this is the moment in time where women are looking at this saying you know what we need better conditions to be working Mm. jobs Mm. and maybe this is this is that time even though it seems that we've gone to the extremist and the extreme right, there's still this, this kind of radicalization of women not returning to the workforce, which is impeding yeah. moving the economy forward in ways because of all the talent that is just not re-entering the workforce at the same but, levels or in the same companies.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good observation. One of my heroes that emerged from all of my research is a lawyer and an entrepreneur named Reshma Sojani. Mm-hmm. S O U J A N I. And she had uh, several years ago, she started a nonprofit called Girls Who Code. Oh, yes. And, yes, I'm uh, familiar yeah. with
1: that. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: last year during COVID, she promulgated a program called the Marshall. Plan for moms.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: I love oh, that. Oh my gosh. And she and 49 of her colleagues, brilliant thought leaders, economists, sociologists, politicians, they took out a one page letter in August, August 26, 2020, right? Women's Equality Day. And it was a love letter, a lovely letter to um, President Joe Biden, mm-hmm. calling for legislation. What they wanted was. Found in Biden's Building Back Better. Building Back Better, yes. And what? And so, Building Back Better does have these components of so Johnny's Marshall Plan for Mom oh. is to get corporate America to really step up mm-hmm. and, and acknowledge if you want women in the paid workforce, you have got to acknowledge the changes that have to happen. Wow! From from on-site daycare to changing hours to Prior to COVID, having flex time working from home, Mm -hmm. anybody who asked to work from home was seen as not taking their job as seriously. Now work from home is an acronym. So I do want to
1: say that you've given me a lot of hope. I think I'm going to call this establishing democracy and saving the world (laughs) rather than saving democracy. And I want to thank you, Dr. Regina Lark, author of Emotional Labor, Why a Woman's Work is Never Done and What to Do About It. Where can they find your book? Quickly amazon
0: amazon.com
1: okay thank you so much and this thank you, has thank you, been thank you. yeah this is joy silver with outspoken